Good morning, LBC. All right, we're going to do something a little differently this morning. Um, this is what we have affectionately come to know as the tag team sermon. Uh, we have chosen a passage of scripture to preach on, and uh, all three of us are going to take a piece of it. So I have the honors of going first, and before any one of us makes a move, let's speak to the Lord about his word and what he wants to do with it in our lives. So let me pray for us. Father, we come to you at least mentally on bended knee, uh, knowing, Lord, that we are entirely at your mercy if we are going to understand anything that you have for us in your word today. Lord, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, invade our hearts, invade our minds, make yourself make sense to us, make your word make sense to us, and Lord, expose to us uh, the things that you have built into us uh, simply by the virtue of the salvation you have given us. Lord, bring those things to the surface so that we may know what is already implanted in us, so that we may draw on those things, so that we may be encouraged, and so that we may be more effective for the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, now, as we examine your word, help us to give it the respect that it demands, and uh, Lord, help those of us who speak it to speak it accurately. And Lord, help all of us who listen now to receive it uh, in such a way that it become engrafted into us that we may look more like Christ by the time we're done here this morning. And we hand this time over to you and uh, all control over to you and uh, all purpose of this time over to you. And we ask that you would change us in Christ's name. Amen. If you would please turn to Ephesians 3, and we are going to begin in verse 14, the passage I am uh, charged with teaching on this morning is verse, our verses 14 through 16. I'll give you a moment to get there. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, that's a lot of religious terminology, and what we're going to need to do is back up and uh, kind of systematically work our way through definitions here and explanations. But before we do that, let's get ourselves in the right historical context. Um, let's step back in time for a moment and attempt to climb into the sandals of the Gentiles uh, to whom Paul is writing this letter. You are a first century Gentile. Because you've grown up in Ephesus, central to your cultural experience has been the worship of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. It surrounds you. It has a grasp on all the monetary exchanges that take place in your culture. Her temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, became the largest bank at one point in the world because of her popular cult following 
and her followers worshipped her through orgies and prostitution, which of course drew tourists from all over the known world. While the activities involved in Artemis worship were certainly appealing to the flesh, and hence its popularity, they left the worshipers empty, broke, and unsure of any response on her part intending to their concerns. Now, at the same time, there has developed this kind of strange people group that uh, refers to themselves as the circumcision. Individuals who claim to worship the one true God, a God that doesn't share his glory with any other, transcendent to and unchallenged in power over all other things that are worshipped. Their worship is well-defined through sacred writings and doesn't leave worshipers wondering if they've been heard. There's wisdom in this religion, which, being the wise uh, Gentile that you have become, the Greek, uh, you have grown up valuing this commodity of wisdom, and there is a loving and personal relationship offered to you through this good news that you have embraced. You've come to Christ, salvation through God, who came to earth in the flesh and who paid your death penalty, that you may know him personally and spend eternity in his presence. These are answers to all the things that you are left wanting as a worshiper of Artemis. The problem is that you are, at least in your mind, a second-class citizen of heaven, a dirty, gentile, idol-worshiping dog that has become tolerated and worthy only to have the spiritual scraps left over by the Jews who let you in. It is this perspective, this attitude, that Paul has just spent the first two chapters in this letter to the Ephesians dismembering and replacing with eternal truth. What must take place now is the truth that he has written must now become understanding and must become conviction in the minds of these Ephesian Gentiles, or else they will never become uh, what they've been designed to become, and they will forever live defeated spiritual lives. So, we know from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that the things of the Spirit, things that are divinely true, are foolishness to the natural man who is not able to understand them because they are spiritually appraised. On the other hand, the spiritual man has the capacity to understand the things of the Spirit because he has the mind of Christ. He has the Holy Spirit. He kind of has that Adobe app that helps him to understand what's being sent to him through the Word of God. That is why Paul begins a prayer in verse 14 that will last to the end of this chapter, and it will be his request that the truths that he had spoken earlier on in the chapter be realized by these saved and spiritually minded Ephesians. But his appeal is not to the Ephesians to understand, but rather to the Father to enable them to understand. Big difference. Verse 14, for this reason. Well, what reason? Paul just spent the first 13 verses of this chapter revealing the great mystery that has existed from the beginning of time until now. That the Jews and the Gentiles are no longer to be identified as such, and have become one. Not because of rituals, or circumcision, or genetic descendants, or geography, or anything else, but because of Christ's payment for both Jewish and Gentile sin, and his death-defeating resurrection from the dead. 
A pastor I was listening to said that it was not like God mixed yellow and blue and got green. Uh, rather, he mixed yellow and blue and got sparkly. An entirely different people among whom there is no longer identification with the yellow or the blue. Chapter 2, verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace. Now catch this. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, catch this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. There is no Jew or Gentile. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Imagine the wonderful news this would be to the dirty dog Gentile who viewed himself as the second-class citizen in heaven. This is why these guys in Ephesus are waking up and they're embracing the gospel. This may be shocking and wonderful news to some of us in here as well. Paul wants you to know that there is no such thing as a second-class citizen in God's family. You have everything that I have, that Pastor Caleb has, that John MacArthur has, and that every believer uh, has simply by virtue that you have been adopted by God himself into his family. If you are saved, you've got everything that the next believer has. Verse 14 continues, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. The posture Paul is taking here is one of humility, understanding that, his, uh, that the fulfillment of his request is not within his ability to produce, nor in the ability of the Ephesians to embrace it. But rather, he and they and we are completely dependent on God to achieve the task. His posture is not one of arrogance or demand. It is not one that indicates a perception that he is forcing God to do his bidding, as has become quite popular in many church circles today. Rather, he has assumed a posture of vulnerability, of acknowledged weakness and submission, making his appeal to the only one who can fulfill his request. This is entirely on God. Verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whom here is the Father. The emphasis in this phrase is on the words whole and family. It does not mean every person on earth over all time. Rather, it emphasizes that it is not just Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are named by the Father, but the whole family, Jews and Gentiles alike, who have turned to follow Christ. Again, there's no second-class citizen here. To once again emphasize equal dispensation of God's glory to both Jew and Gentile and to eradicate the notion that these Gentiles are second-class citizens or have some lesser kind of status than those to whom the oracles were originally given, all in Christ are named by the Father. They have the same name, the same genetics, if you will, the same indwelling Holy Spirit, the same benefits of family membership. One of the biblical implications of naming implies character. Thus, a name is more than something that distinguishes one person from another. Rather, it shows the true nature of a person. We become new creations when we are born again. And those who have been born again have indeed been born to a father 
the exact same father as the next guy who got born again. Amen? Amen. Verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Holy Spirit in the inner man. Paul began, in verse 14, a request within his prayer with this verse. He asked the one thing, he asked for only one thing in this prayer. Strength in the inner man. The question is, how does that become produced? Paul is asking that God give us something. He's not asking that God give us riches, but rather that we would be strengthened by the riches we already have. I remember when I got my first smartphone, actually the first time I handled a smartphone, uh, Dan Herman showed me Angry Birds on it, and it blew my mind. <laughs> I'm like, I'll never be bored, you know, bored again. <laughs> I had so much power in one little device that I could stick in my pocket, yet so little knowledge of that power. It was there. It was immediately accessible, but I knew nothing of it. I didn't know that I could find all my other devices by speaking to my phone or learn about a product in a store by capturing its barcode on my photo app or write a thousand word essay in a matter of seconds on the Trinity without doing a bit of research and it was actually pretty good or track each of my family across the entire globe all at the same time. Blew my mind and I'm just scratching the surface. So much power, so untapped because of such great ignorance. Imagine what we could do with our cell phones if we only knew what they all had in them. How much greater the consequence of not knowing what we have in Christ. And this knowledge will only make sense if God makes it make sense. Hence Paul's request in prayer to God to give such understanding. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us, to make it make sense to us. So what are the spiritual apps that we already have in us? Well, just in the beginning of Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and 2, we have a whole string of things that he lists. In uh, 1.3, he says that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In 1.4, we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In 1.5, he predestined us in love for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Also in 1.5, we were adopted according to the purpose of his will. We were adopted to the praise in, uh, of his glorious grace. 1.6, uh, we're blessed by his glorious grace in the beloved. 1.7, re we receive redemption through his blood. Uh, also in 1.7, we receive the forgiveness of our trespasses. 1.11 through 12, we have obtained an inheritance of being those who were first to hope in Christ to the praise of his glory. 1.13, we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. 2.5, made alive together with Christ because we were dead. 2.6, we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 2.10, uh, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 2.13, we're no longer far off but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 2.18, we have access in one spirit to the Father. 2.19, we become fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 2.22, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's just the beginning. 
if we would just get it, if we would just get it that we are not second-class citizens in heaven because there is no such thing, if we would just get it that we're all members of the same family in which no one has greater advantage than another, if we would just get all the stuff we need to tap into, to live lives that are God-glorifying and God-serving, and we got that in our inner man, our innermost being would be strengthened to a level of maximal spiritual nourishment and spiritual poverty would be eradicated. Amen? Amen? Imagine what it's like to never worry again because you know God is sovereign and he's in control and you're his kid. And like Paul, when we pray, this is what we should be praying, that everyone in here gets it. Amen? Praise the Lord. This is Memorial Day weekend, and that means that we are smack dab in the middle of graduation season. Graduation for college has occurred over the last couple of weeks, and graduation from high school is going to take place over the next couple of weeks, which means there's a lot of reason to celebrate and give thanks for those who are completing their studies. Seniors of both categories, high school and college, I want you to know that I'm proud of you, and I'm excited for you, and in particular, I'm excited for three reasons. First, because you're going to be moving into a new stage of life. Secondly, because you're going to be stepping up in terms of maturity and responsibility. And thirdly, because you are finally, at last, free from the bonds of structured education, at least temporarily. Now, if you were paying attention to those things, you will notice that they have, although different, a very similar sentiment. Although those are different phrases, different statements, different reasons that I am excited, it's actually really just three ways of saying the exact same thing. The, the portion of the text that I'm covering today is found in verses 17 through 19. And in these three verses, Paul makes three different prayer requests for the saints in Ephesus. Now, although they are different, they overlap so closely that it's actually like these three requests are three different ways of hammering home the exact same truth. All three of these prayer requests begin with the word that or so that. So let's walk through them one by one. Verse 17 begins, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. One of the ways that you can tell if someone has genuine love for another person is if they are willing to spend time with that other person. This is especially true when it comes to people that are difficult to love. All of us have known at least one person who is difficult to love. Most of us have known many people that are difficult to love. All of us have known someone like that. Uh, maybe you are someone like that. But let's do a reality check. Compared to Jesus, all of us are difficult to love. Compared to Jesus, you are a difficult person to love. Let's just take the roommate scenario. You know what I mean, where you have two people that go to college together, and you have one roommate who is clean and tidy and organized and structured, and they wake up at the right times, they go to bed at the right times, and they make sure everything is clean and organized in the room. And the other person is a complete disaster. They are, tor are a tornado. They walk in, and everything is destroyed. 
In that scenario, the roommate scenario, you are always the one that makes the mess and Jesus is always the one that is perfectly clean and pure. Even so, even so, Jesus desires to make his home with us. The New Testament describes it in, on five different occasions as Christ abiding in you. Paul has already established earlier in this book that if you have been saved by grace through faith, then you are in Christ. That little phrase, in Christ, is one of Paul's favorite ways of describing our salvation. Now, this is not a prayer request for salvation. Rather, it is a prayer request for the Ephesians to be sanctified, to be made more holy, to be made more like Jesus. And how does that happen? It happens by the indwelling and empowering work of Jesus in us. Charles Spurgeon helps us to grasp the settling in of the Savior in our hearts when he says it this way. He says, that he may dwell does not mean that he might visit you sometimes as a casual visitor enters into a house and tarries for a night, but that he may dwell, that Jesus may become Lord and tenant of your heart. Now, when thinking of Jesus as a tenant of your heart, think of him as the owner, not the renter. He is taking up rightful place within you. He is taking his throne on your heart. The fact that Jesus operates in this manner should overwhelm you with joy and with awe. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. That's not just a title about his time on earth between his conception and his ascension. It continues to be true. He is God with us. And Paul continues his prayer with a second request saying that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now he begins this part of the prayer by noting that in order for this to actually take place, you must first be rooted and grounded in love. Yesterday, a group of faithful members and attenders of the church joined us out front to make the, the yard look really nice. And perhaps you saw on the way in that it looks beautiful today. And that's because they did a lot of work to make it look like that. One of the things that they were doing yesterday was putting in new flowers in the beds out there. Now, please don't do this. But if you wanted to do this, you could walk out there and you could look at those peony flowers and you could literally just grab one and without any effort, slide it right back out of the dirt. And you can do that because there are no established roots. However, one of the other jobs that people were doing yesterday was pulling out weeds. And those took different effort because their roots dug down deep and they expanded and they latched onto everything possible. The soil that you must be planted in in order for you to receive this prayer request that Paul is talking about is the soil of love. But what does that even mean? What love is he talking about? Whose love is he referencing? The only answer that makes sense is that this is referring to the love of Christ that he speaks about again at the end of his prayer request. If your life is rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus, then this prayer request is possible. Is that the soil that your roots are growing in today? Or are you establishing your foundation on other hopes and other promises? If your roots are established and they are growing in the infinite love of Christ, then Paul notes that the result is that you will have strength to comprehend. 
Now this sounds a little bit weird, I think, to the American ear. It's not strange to think of needing strength to do something, and it isn't even strange, in my opinion, to speak about having strength to learn something, as if you were to study it. But that's not what Paul is talking about. It is a little odd to our ears that Paul highlights our need for spiritual strength to comprehend something. That you could just grasp the general essence of something. You must have strength in order to do that. Paul goes on to describe what kind of grasping is to be done, that we are to grasp the dimensions of the breadth and length and height and depth. His Holy Spirit-inspired prayer is that we would be able to realize the dimensions of this particular thing. Well, everyone knows a lot of things. You know a lot of things that I don't know, and I probably know at least some things that you don't know. We all know a lot of things. We live in an information age. But there are some things that nobody can know apart from God working in them. Even with the help of God, notice how Paul describes this particular thing that Paul wants you to know. He describes it as that which surpasses knowledge. That's a wild thing to say. That is a audacious thing to say. Imagine writing something like this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I want you to know that which surpasses knowledge. He wants you to know something that goes beyond the ability to know. What is it that Paul is praying that Christians would know? He tells us, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He wants us to actually know the love of Christ. Now, knowing the love of Christ is not a one-time thing that happens to you when you get saved. That's when you first taste and see that God is good. That's how you get the first nibble of the incredible feast of God's love. But the rest of our lives are carried out in discovering more deeply and clearly and personally how Jesus loves me. Karl Barth is one of the most prolific theologians that lived in the 20th century. And although I disagree with him on a number of important doctrinal points, there is one thing I think he got incredibly right. In 1962, towards the end of his life, he made a visit to the United States, and by this time he had published over four million words about theology. And as he was traveling and he was talking about his writings and doing different speaking events here in the States, someone here asked him if there was a way to boil down all of his many volumes into one simple summary that he could present. And his response was, absolutely. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's not difficult to, for us to understand that Jesus loves us. If you are saved, you certainly understand that Jesus loves you. Christian maturity occurs when we begin to understand how Jesus loves us. Your Christian life does not revolve around how much you can personally do to convince God to love you. It's all about comprehending the enormous, expansive, universe-spanning, dimension-superseding, limitless love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. You know what I find ridiculous? Love poems are ridiculous. Scratch that, because it's bigger than that. What I find ridiculous is what people who are in love, especially young people that are newly in love, say to each other. Things that they say are absolutely absurd. For example, 
In the movie It's a Wonderful Life, there is a scene when George and Mary are falling in love towards the beginning of the movie, and George says to her, uh, what, what do you want, Mary? Do you, do you want the moon? If you want it, I'll throw a lasso around it. I'll, I'll pull it down for you. Hey, that's a pretty swell idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. And Mary says, well, I'll take it. Then what? And he says, well, then, then you can swallow it, and it'll dissolve, see? And the moonbeams will shoot out of your fingers and out of your toes and out of your hair. And then he asks, am I talking too much? And the strange neighbor as well as everyone who's watching the television, agrees and says, yes, you know what? That is weird. What he said is weird, but I understand his point. What is he trying to do? He is trying to think of the biggest possible feat imaginable. He is trying to look at the most ridiculously extreme thing that he could do, and he would say, I would do that for you, Mary. The problem is, when people in love make those kinds of exaggerated statements, they can't actually do them. God does not exaggerate his promises. Consider that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's third prayer request for the saints is that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. The good news of the gospel extends beyond the fact that God makes your spirit come to life. He does that, amen. But it's more than just the fact that God forgives our sin. He does that, and amen. And it's bigger than the gifts of faith and repentance and hope, and it's more expansive and more powerful than the promise of heaven and eternal rewards. The best part of the gospel is that through the cross, God is able to give us himself. So much that we are told that God's desire is to fill us with all of his fullness. That is the most extreme blessing I can imagine. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, it speaks of Jesus and says of him that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Colossians 2, 9, it adds, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. How amazing is it that Paul is now employing that exact same language in a spiritual sense to describe God's desire to fill us with himself. Not that we in any way become God, but that God in truth and in reality inhabits us. In the next chapter, Paul seems to expound on this idea when he writes that we must grow into the, quote, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is how Paul prayed for his Ephesian brothers and sisters. This is what we should pray for one another. And moreover, brothers and sisters, this is what we should pray and expect for ourselves, that God would delight to fill us with all of his fullness. These are good works, and we must pray that God might make them manifest in our midst. Amen. Verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is our image of God too small? 
even after everything we just heard, is our image of God too small? Not in terms of size or spatially, but in the case of God's power. Is our image of God too small? Yes, we verbally acknowledge that Yahweh is all-powerful, he's omnipotent, but in our day-to-day lives, when trials and tribulations come, and they will come, do we behave as though the Lord cannot help us? That the creator of all that is cannot do anything about our struggles with sin, our concerns about life, or our situations? Never mind the fact that he has ordained these hardships in the first place. Is our image of God too small? Are our prayers, if we do pray, are they often weak and riddled with self-doubt and unbelief? But remember that James warns us that if we pray while doubting, that we cannot expect to receive anything from the Lord, James 1, 6-7. But if that describes you or me today, don't lose heart. Let's look at Ephesians 3, 20-21, wherein we have a doxology, which is an eruption of praise to God. And in this doxology, Paul clarifies any misconceptions we may have regarding our God's power and his strength. So Paul begins with, now to him who is able. Now the word able implies ability. Now I have a question for you. Who in here has ever asked someone for help with something? Maybe help with a home improvement project, trouble with your car, help with a move, a ride to the airport? Okay, who in here has ever gotten a response that goes something like this? Hey man, I'd love to help, but you fill in the blank. I'd love to help, but I'm unavailable. I'd love to help, but I hurt my back. I'd love to help, but I have to work. I'd love to help, but it's against my religion to help. Now, in the first place, God being omnipresent is never unavailable. Amen. He's never unavailable. He's all places at all times. He's omnipresent. He also never sleeps, so he is not limited in these ways as we are. All Christians know that. So where's our dilemma? Well, it must have something to do with God's ability to act. Let's step back again to when we asked that imaginary friend to help us out. What if they actually agree to help us? What if they agree to give us a hand? What if they are available? What if they show up at our house on time and with a good attitude? Not me, but with a good attitude. But when they open up their toolbox, there's no tools in there. There's just a box of crayons. And they're all broken. Or worse yet, what if there's nothing inside the box? What if it's completely empty? So when they begin the work, they demonstrate that although they're available, they are not able. They are, after all, incapable to help us with anything. That's like Rocky asking me to help him out at his next HVAC job. I mean, it's a big mistake. I can drive the van, I can make the coffee run, but other than that, I'm pretty useless. He'd be better off getting his daughter Ellie to help. (laughs) He's two years old. In fact, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I attempted for 20 minutes during the sermon, I'm sorry, to turn the ACs on up in the balcony. Usually I'm not hot, I get annoyed at people, they're like, oh, it's so hot, but it was death up there. So I'm running around trying to get it to work. So everyone that saw me distracting them, putzing around up there, all asked me the same question. Have you told Rocky? You see, I was available, but I was unable. 
Now, now, a disclaimer, real quick. Please remember the, the saying that many hands make light work. Okay, don't use this illustration as an excuse not to help out a brother or sister in need just because you're not skilled in that area. I mean, just by being there, you can be an encouragement as long as you don't break anything. So even if you're not skilled, please, in love, be available for your brother or sister if they need help. But you do get my analogy. I mean, you know that we, as a whole, as a race, are not able, ultimately. But God is able. He's available, and he is able, and he's able to, you fill in the blank. And after you filled in the blank, you would still underestimate him. And even if you could exhaust the Bible's vast amount of examples of doctrine and regarding God's ability, which you can't, but even if you did, he would still exceed all you could ask or even imagine. Notice how Paul phrases it in our text this morning. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. The King James renders it now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly. Exceeding abundantly all that we ask or think. Now human language is far too inadequate to express the supremacy of the Lord. Saying abundantly should be enough. Abundantly or abundant means plentiful. Enough. But exceeding abundantly, that's overkill. It reminds me of the scene from the Pixar movie Cars. Does anyone see the movie Cars? If you know my son Logan, you know we've seen it many, many, many times. And if you're not familiar with the movie, uh, the cars are anthropomorphic. They, have, they can talk, they, they, they eat, they drink oil. I mean, and, and so there's a scene where a, a husband and wife car set get lost. So they wander into the town of Radiator Springs, and everyone in the town is desperate to get their business because they just built a, a freeway so no one goes to the little town anymore. So uh, one of the uh, store owners in the town is an army jeep named Sarge. And Sarge sees these people and he runs out and he says, good to see you, soldier. Come on by Sarge's surplus for all your government surplus needs. So the wife car says, oh, look, honey, surplus. And the husband replies, honey, we have too much surplus. Get it? Too much? Surplus is enough, but too much surplus is like exceeding abundantly. Okay, enough with the kids' movies. Listen to the way 19th century theologian Charles Hodge puts it. He says this, those who have been raised from the dead, that's us, who have been transformed by the renewing of their minds, translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son, and in whom God himself dwells by his spirit, having already experienced a change with nothing, which nothing but omnipotence could affect, may well join in the doxology to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly all above we can ask or think. In other words, all of the miraculous wonders that God has personally performed in you, in your individual lives, prove that he is indeed able and that he will continue to produce his desired outcomes in your life individually and collectively in the church. But we'll revisit the church in just a moment. Let's really quickly flesh out what Paul is saying here regarding God's power, specifically that his power is now at work within us. That much was just explained by the Hodge quote. This work, number one, resurrection from the dead to spiritual life. Number two, the translation from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son. And number three, the renewal of our minds, the Holy Spirit's indwelling work, all this is done by an omnipotent, all-powerful God. And this power is at work in us and will continue. 
and it will continue in accordance to what he's done and is doing. To put it another way, as God continues to sanctify us, which means to conform us into the image of his son, he will move us to desire his will. You see, our will will be conformed into his will, and therefore it's his will that we will cry out for. Do you get it? As Jesus himself said in John 14, verses 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we know that this does not mean just tagging in Jesus' name on the end of every wacky prayer we can think of. It's not some magical spell. No, the key is when you ask in Jesus' name, that's asking according to his will. And it's asking in accordance to the Father's glory. And therefore, God will, according to the power at work in you, and all that entails, he'll do far more than the most sanctified saint can ask or even think about. And that's a promise. This promise is sure he will glorify himself through you. And all the time this is working in conjunction with your daily walk, your daily seeking of his face, your daily submission to his will. And yes, we know it's his omnipotent power, it's not ours, but remember that it works in proportion to our willingness to obey. Paul writes to the Galatian church in Galatians 5.16, and he says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then down in verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Daily, active, keeping step, walking in the Spirit, being ready for honorable use, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.21. Again, to, be, to God be the glory. He must receive all the glory in everything and for everything, and it's he who works all things according to the counsel of his will that Steve mentioned at the beginning. Now, there's one more thing quickly I would like to draw your attention to this morning. Notice that in the text where God is to receive this glory, where he's supposed to receive this glory. Verse 21 tells us in the church, in the assembly of the saints, not you alone with your Bible, not you and Jesus under a tree, not you in your private prayer closet, not you online with people you're never going to meet, but you in the church, with us, the bride of Christ, his body on earth. Yes, we know individually we are in Christ if we're saved, but corporately we are in Christ as differing but united members of his body, 1 Corinthians 12. As the church, we encourage one another into the glorification of God. We edify, we teach, we point each other to him. We stir up one another to faith and good works. We encourage and we admonish. And so this whole process of sanctification, with God using the body as one means to do that, brings him glory in the church. And please, one more thing. Notice how long the church will endure. It says throughout all generations. About 10 or so years ago, maybe more, a false teacher by the name of Harold Camping instructed his many listeners of family radio to leave their churches, and sadly, many did, because according to him, the church age had ended. And those of us who remember that dark time know the extensive damage that this man and his false teaching caused. But 
One verse that was a shining beacon of sanity during that crazy time was this very verse, where it says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And we remember the promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. The church of Jesus will endure for all time. Amen? And therefore, let us partake of that joint mission to glorify God within, to preach the gospel without. Now, before we close, let me say another word about the gospel. Steve clearly uh, described it. Caleb clearly described it, but I need to hear it over and over again. So let's talk about the gospel. The gospel, as you know, means the good news. And the good news is that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, came to save sinners from the wrath of God by living a sinless life for them, by dying on the cross, paying for their sins. That is what being saved means. The bad news is that we're all sinners deserving of God's wrath and need a Savior in the first place. But we need to understand and truly believe that. So if you acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you are unable to save yourself and believe that Jesus' work paid completely for your sins, you can add nothing to what he did. If you repent of your sins and follow him daily, then that's proof that you are saved. And the fruit of the Spirit that you produce by his grace will bear witness that you are, in fact, a child of God. So if your heart is stirring, please see one of us after the service. We can discuss that in more detail. But for the rest of us, in review, ask yourself, is my image of God too small? If it is, first repent. And remember these three things, these three truths. Number one, God is able to do more than we can even fathom, so put your faith in him. Number two, God's power is at work within us. It works in concert with our sensitivity to his leading and our daily obedience to him, so walk in the spirit. And number three, God is glorified in his everlasting church, the bride of Christ, so serve him in this local body. Is our image of God too small? Well, look around you. Look at the redeemed of the Lord in this room. See what he has done in their lives, in the lives of the saints, and in your own life. God is able to him be the glory. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for uh, meeting us where we are. We thank you for your miraculous truths that you make known to us through your spirit. We thank you for the clear exposition of your word. I pray right now that as we heard your word, that we would not just agree to it and then forget about it. I pray, O oh God, that you would move us by your spirit to do what it says. To do what it says is evidence of salvation in our lives. I pray you'd make us cognizant of how we're walking and you allow us to seek you more daily. I pray that the church would function as it should function, admonishing one another, encouraging one another, welcoming one another, praying with one another. I pray, oh God, that your power will be made manifest in this building, and not only in this building, but in the lives of the individual believers as we go here. Lord, may you be glorified this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.